I'll invite you to turn to Genesis 1-1. Shouldn't be too hard to find. Page number 1, verse 1. Perhaps the most read verse in all the Bible. As people start the year, endeavoring to read through the Bible in a year, they start here, and then they quit by the time they get to Leviticus. <laughs> Genesis 1-1. If you will, let's stand to our feet and let's read God's Word together. And I'm excited today to begin this new series with you, Origins. We're going to be looking at the book of beginnings, Genesis 1 through 11. But here we are, the foundational verse of all things. Genesis 1-1, let's read it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Dear Lord, we thank you for this foundational truth. And Lord, if we can believe this first verse of the Bible, it's going to help us to clear up a lot of things in life. Bless your reading and preaching of your word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The title of today's message, The God of Creation. In 1977, NASA launched two small probes, Voyager 1 and 2. And they were sent into the heavens on a journey which would take them billions of miles away from Earth. The purpose of these high-tech space roving machines was to explore the reaches of our solar system and to send back data of their findings. Well, in 1990, 12 years after launch, Voyager 1 was 4 billion miles away from the Earth. And as Voyager 1 slipped past Pluto and out of our cosmic neighborhood, NASA radioed the spacecraft and ordered its lenses to focus back toward planet Earth and take one last image before it moved outside of its broadcast range. Voyager 1's view of the Earth was snapped and it became one of the most iconic images of astronomy and it was dubbed, listen to this, the pale blue dot. Now, it doesn't look like you're seeing very much there, mostly black. But in this muddled picture, if you squint really hard in that single ray of sunlight, there is a pale blue pixel, and that's planet Earth from 4 billion miles away. At the time of this photo, Carl Sagan was the world's best-known astronomer, and he wrote a little piece about the pale blue dot. Here's what he said. He said, quote, Consider that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was or lived out their lives in the history of our species has lived here on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth, he said, is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of that little blue dot. Our planet, he said, is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, 
In all its vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Now, that was Carl Sagan. And his bleak outlook doesn't exactly give you the warm fuzzies today, does it? Well, that's because Carl Sagan was an avowed atheist who ironically spent all of his life studying the beauty and complexity of the cosmos and never acknowledged a creator. Imagine that. Staring into the starry host night after night, studying the grandness of God's creation and yet missing the greatest point. That God says, I am here and I am not silent. Now, according to men like Sagan, we call them atheists, we call them materialists, they say that life has no purpose and that humanity is just a cosmic accident. We are merely products of time plus matter plus chance. And so, if you adopt that as your worldview, it's no wonder then that we are living in the mess that we have here in 2024, where we're confused about basic things such as gender, where suicide rates are at an all-time high, where depression is a pariah and the most technologically advanced generation, and there's a host of social ills that are running rampant in our modern era, and it can all be traced back to that fundamental idea that there is no help coming from outside the pale blue dot, to save us from ourselves. And so, when you have generations of young people who are pumped into the university systems and they hear so-called learned and elucidated men preaching from their podiums that you are just a cosmic accident, you're highly evolved ponds that life has no real meaning, that no God is out there to save us, then it's no wonder that young people find very little reason for carrying on a struggle through a short and brutal existence. And that, my friend, is just one reason why studying the book of Genesis is so important today. Everyone asks the four fundamental questions of life. At some point, everybody has to answer these four fundamental questions. First, where did we come from? That's a question of origin. Am I the creation of a loving and creative God, or am I just a blip on the cosmic radar? What is right and wrong? That's the second question. That's a question of morality. Is there really good or evil in the universe, or are we just dancing to our DNA, making it up as we go along? The third question, why am I here? What's my purpose? Is it to eat, drink, and be merry and please myself and live for me, myself, and I? Or do I have a higher purpose? To enjoy God and worship Him forever. And then the fourth question, what happens when I die? Do I just become food for worms? Or is there something beyond? Is there a God that I'm accountable to? Is there a heaven to gain and a hell to shun? Now, every worldview has to answer these questions in some way, and Genesis is the foundation of answering all these. Because here in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, all these questions and more are answered for us. I love Henry Morris. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but he begins his book, The Genesis Record, with these preface words. He says, quote, The book of Genesis is probably the most important book ever written. If the book of Genesis were somehow cut away from the Scriptures then the rest of the Bible would be incomprehensible. 
It would be like a building without a ground floor or a bridge without support. The book of Genesis gives vital information concerning the origin of all things and therefore the meaning of all things. The future is bound up in the past, he said, and one's belief concerning his origin will inevitably determine his belief concerning his purpose and destiny. And so an understanding of the book of Genesis, he said, is therefore prerequisite to understanding God and the meaning to man. What a great introduction this morning as we read Genesis 1-1. And as we begin our study in the book of beginnings, I want to unpack this foundational verse. There's so much here. And you say, well, preacher, it's just ten words. Yeah, but the whole world is in those ten words. And I want you to see here four principles of creation and four things that we learn about the mighty God that we call Father as we study Genesis 1-1 here today. Number one, what does creation teach us? It teaches us this, that creation demonstrates proof for God. Creation demonstrates proof for God. Notice the first words, in the beginning, what? God. Now, notice this. The Bible never argues for God's existence. It doesn't give you a syllogism or a philosophical synopsis. It doesn't try and argue for God's existence. It merely just presents Him as a fact on page 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, now you deal with it. <laughs> don't you love that? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that or to make a case for the Creator. In fact, we know this intuitively because you can't get something from nothing. Now, Psalm 14.1 speaks to this. The Bible says there that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, notice the phrasing there. He said in his heart. In other words, he's determined. He's decided that that is what he wants to believe. Now, think about it. If every book required an author... If every painting required an artist and every house required a builder, then it necessitates that our universe requires a creator. Paul points this out, Romans 1, that it's undeniable proof of God when you look at the creation. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What church? So they are without excuse. In other words, Paul is saying, if you walk through the world and you observe the beauty and complexity of the stars and the waterfalls and the mountains and the creation, you're without excuse. You know this just didn't happen uncaused out of nothing. And so, atheism, listen to me, is a choice to reject God, not out of a lack of evidence, but out of a heart of rebellion. There's plentiful evidence and proof for God. My friend, just open your eyes. You see, what the reality is, is sinful man doesn't want there to be a God because if there is a God, that means I'm not God, and maybe one day I'll be held accountable to that God, and I want to live the way I want to live with no consequences and no sin. 
Atheists don't look for God for the same reason that a thief doesn't look for a policeman. Right? They don't want there to be a God. The fool has said in his heart, there can't be a God. So, atheism is not an ascent to intellectual greatness. It is a descent into total hopelessness. A lot of your garden variety atheists don't think this thing all the way through. If your worldview is true, as Carl Sagan said, there's nobody outside of the pale blue dot, then think about it. If there's no God, then there's no morality. Because there's no objective standard by which you can measure right from wrong, good from evil. So there's no difference between the way Mother Teresa lived and Hitler lived. Is that what you're saying? Yet that's what the fundamental underlying assumption of atheism is. There's no morality. There's no purpose to your life. You just live and you become dust and then you turn into nothing. There's no reason for your thoughts because you're just a product of random evolution. How can you even trust your own thoughts? And then there's ultimately no hope. Atheism is a worldview of complete and total hopelessness. In fact, many people who have lived by the tenets of atheism have concluded the end of it that they should just go ahead and snuff themselves out of their miserable existence. So, when you come down to it, here's what atheism says. You come from nothing, your life means nothing, and when you die, you go back into the nothing. <laughs> now, who wants to live that way? Right? Does that make sense? Is that a truth that you can build Western civilization on? No. So let's talk about the origin of the universe. As Genesis 1-1 pointed out, it proves God. Now, when scientists talk about cosmology, that is the study of the origin and the development of the universe, there's only three possibilities. And I've looked at this long and hard. You only got three choices when it comes to where did we come from. You can say, number one, the universe made itself. Number two, the universe always existed. Or you can say, number three, the universe was created by God, just as Genesis 1 says. We know the first possibility can't be true because it's absolutely absurd. Have you ever been walking along the beach and seen grains of sand spontaneously form themselves into a sandcastle? Have you ever been noticing in your kitchen that you get up one morning and the ingredients in the refrigerator have somehow magically assembled themselves into a delicious chocolate cake? You see, the first reason can't be true because inanimate matter can't make itself into anything. It doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have a will. You have to have a designer with a mind and a will who chooses to create. The second possibility that the universe always existed, that can't be true either because science over the 20th and 21st century has proven a finite universe. In other words, that the universe had a beginning. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Therefore, the universe had a cause. Let me show you one piece of evidence. In 1927, Edwin Hubble discovered the phenomenon known as redshift. Here's Edwin Hubble coming up on your screen. He studied the movements of the stars and galaxies and he observed from the Mount Hood Observatory over there in California that as he studied the stars and galaxies, they were moving apart from each other, little by little. And he deducted from that that, wait a second, if they're moving apart, then that must mean that if you rewind that back in time, then they must have been together to an infinitesimal point of time, matter, and space, which we call nothing. <laughs> Imagine a balloon. Look at this picture coming up of a balloon. Here's how redshift worked. 
Imagine that I have a balloon, and I take that deflated balloon, and I draw little dots on it, and then I inflate it. Well, as I blow air into that balloon, it's going to expand, and those dots are going to move further and further apart, right? Well, that's basically the idea of redshift, which Hubble saw in the night sky. And friend, this is just one little piece of compelling evidence that points to the fact that the theologians always had it right in Genesis 1.1. There's a finite universe, and God made it all. So that only leaves us one viable option, what we call creation ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing. Now, I know what the skeptics are going to say. Because I've been in those water cooler discussions with them before. It goes something like this. They say, well, you Christians have a problem. I love it when they say something like that. If God made the universe, then who made God? As if nobody's ever heard that one before. My friend, all you have to do is open the Bible and understand that God doesn't fit into that category because God doesn't have a beginning. God is eternal. He's outside time. He's outside space. He's outside matter. So the rules of physics don't apply to him because he created the rules. By the way, that question, who made God, that's like asking, what does the color blue taste like? Or it's like asking the question, how much do ideas weigh? It's a category error. God doesn't fit into that. Nobody made God. He doesn't fit into that category because He's the unmade maker. Friend, here's what it boils down to if you're struggling with this. It takes more faith to believe in an uncaused creation than it does in an uncaused creator. Which one makes more sense to say? Do we say no one times nothing equals everything or in the beginning God? Which makes more sense? Here's what evolution says, that if you take billions of years and you add natural selection, you can get frogs to turn into princes. Well, in the cinema, we call that a fairy tale, but in the lab, somehow, it's science. Friend, I'm here today to tell you, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Amen? Number one, creation demonstrates proof for God. Shall I keep going? Number two, I want you to see here today, Creation displays the power of God. Not only demonstrates proof for God, but demonstrates the power of God. You know, one of the critiques that is often made against the Bible, I hear it from time to time, they say, oh, you can't trust the Bible. It's full of contradictions and lies. By the way, one quick uh, question you need to ask them is, okay then, full of contradictions and lies, name one. Most people can't because all they've watched is a two-minute video off TikTok or YouTube and they're parroting what they've heard. They've never actually read the Bible. But they say, oh, you can't trust the Bible. It's so unscientific. Well, obviously, the people who say that haven't actually studied the very first verse on the very first page. Because packed into that opening statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is everything you need to do science. Let me break it down for you. Look at this slide coming up here. I want you to see this. Notice, everything is here. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's the first cause. Created, that's energy. Space, the heavens. And the earth, that's matter. Friend, in those ten words are the foundation for all scientific 
discovery, right? You have time, you have space, you have matter, you have energy, and a first cause in the first verse. You know what the greatest miracle in the Bible is? Well, some say it's uh, you know, Jesus walking on water or turning the fishes and the loaves into uh, a feast for the masses or, or maybe when Jesus rose from dead and all those are great. Don't get me wrong, I love all God's miracles, especially the ones He does for me. But the greatest miracle of all is right here in page 1. Creating everything the eye can see, the ear can hear, and that we can experience from nothing. He didn't even start with a speck of dirt. He had to create the dirt first before he could create the first man. My friend, if you have trouble with miracles and your Bible, might I remind you to go back to Genesis 1.1 because if God can make everything out of nothing, then healing the sick, raising the dead, walking on water, that's like kindergarten doodling for my God. And so we see the power of God in creation. Listen to what Isaiah 40 and verse 25 and 26 says. He says, To whom then shall you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes as high as they can see. Who created these? He's talking about the stars, right? Who brings out their hosts by number? Calling them all by name. Only God knows the name of every star. And then notice this. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Do you believe that? God put all the stars in their sockets and they all serve a purpose and a reason. And even if it's beyond our understanding and we haven't discovered it yet, God's got it there for a purpose and a reason. You know, when President Teddy Roosevelt was in office, the bull moose as they call him, historians say that one of his habits was when he entertained guests at the White House, he would take them to the back lawn and when the day was over, He'd take them outside and they would gaze into the sky and as Teddy Roosevelt looked up into the starry host, he would tell his guests, just look, ponder, try and count them all. And after looking up at all those innumerable stars scattered across that vast black nothingness of space for a couple of minutes, he would then say, after that quiet, he would say, gentlemen, I think we're small enough now. Let's go to bed. Isn't that good? If God can hold all those whirling galaxies and stars and planets in the palm of His hand, what can He do in your life? I'm not talking about a weak God. I'm not talking about an idol on a shelf. I'm not talking about some statue that we go bow to at a mausoleum. I'm talking about a God who's so mighty that He stepped out on the balcony of nothing and called it all into being. And the God of the Bible is still ruling and reigning today. And if He can do all that with nothing, then what can He do with your life, my friend? I think sometimes we sell Him short. But I'm talking about a God of unimaginable power who holds it all together. If, if, if this God can create it all from nothing, He can heal any sickness. Amen? He can remove any mountain, amen. He can break any chain that's holding you down today. And He can meet every need according to His riches in glory. You know what some people say? I hear it all the time. Some people say, oh preacher, I tried church and it just didn't work. I didn't get anything I was singing. 
Preacher talked over my head. And wouldn't you know, them people judged me. You know what I say about that? My friend, you tried religion. You tried going to church and trying it out. You didn't try the God of Genesis 1-1. Because if you tried the God of infinite power, He would change some things in your life. In fact, my friend, every time we see somebody born again by the Spirit of God, we see a miracle even greater than creation. Because in creation, God was dealing with inanimate matter that completely obeyed His will. But when you see a sinner born again by the Spirit of God, He's overcoming the obstinate, rebellious, sinful will of man and making them a new person. Amen? Amen? Oh, I think that old Peg McCamey, some of you know who she was, great gospel singer, she's with Jesus now. Don't you know she's got that little hanky up there in heaven? Waving the glory cloud in. You know, they used to sing that song, the old McCamey's. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I remember the words. How does it feel to be a child of a king that your heavenly Father (laughs) knows everything? How does it feel to know that you're loved by the one who created the stars up above? How does it feel to know you're all right when you lay your head on the pillow at night and know that it's real? Thank God. I know how it feels. Amen. I'm talking about creation displays the power of God. Creation demonstrates proof for God. Can I have just a few more minutes? I'm going to stop asking for permission. I'm just going to preach. Is that okay with you? Number three, I want you to see this. Creation declares the precision of God. I don't know if you're having a good time, but I am. Creation declares the precision of God. At the end of Job's suffering, in Job chapter 38, you come to chapter 38 and 39, it's the end of Job's suffering. God speaks from the whirlwind. And he asked Job a series of 77 unanswerable questions. I mean, Job is, uh, he, he is stunned by what God is asking him. Notice what it says here. Job 38, 4 and 5, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Now, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, you need to reread that verse. Because that is loaded with humor and sarcasm because God is asking Job a series of questions that he knows he can't answer. And Job is brought to the end of himself and he says, you know what, if I can't understand the basic things of the universe, then maybe I can't understand why God has allowed me to suffer and I just need to trust Him by faith. But notice the idea here that's contained. That God has determined the boundaries, the dimensions of creation. Listen to me. I'm going to get a little bit scientific, okay? He has set the speed of light exactly where it needed to be. He made the force of gravity fine-tuned. He placed the earth in just the right spot in our solar system so that it's close enough to the sun and yet far away from the sun that we're right there in that Goldilocks zone where we need to be. And he created the boundaries for the seas. Atlantic Ocean, you go this far and you go no more. Pacific Ocean, here's how far you go and you go no more. And God scooped it out with the palm of his hand and filled it 
In other words, everything in our universe is precisely figured to God's design specifications. Now, we think that we're smart, but in just the past few decades, let me remind you, mankind has only got the scientific instruments available to him to measure and understand just how precisely on a razor's edge God has put together not only our bodies, but this universe that we live in. They are called anthropic constants. That's the scientific name. They are physical features of creation that show the universe has been intelligently designed. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I do love the 4th of July, and I'm a red-blooded American male. I love blowing up stuff. Amen? And I've blown up a lot of stuff in my time. And I've never one time noticed an explosion ever create anything. I mean, you don't take a stick of dynamite and throw it into a junkyard and out comes a working 747 plane. Right? But God used the power of creation, the explosive power, to bring about order out of chaos, to bring about design, to bring about purpose, to bring about beauty. Only God can do that. And they say, well, what about the Big Bang? Okay, yeah, maybe there was a Big Bang, but you better make sure there's a Big Banger behind the Big Bang. Right? Who made it all happen. But these are design features, anthropic constants. Let me just point out a few of them to you. Did you know that Earth is 93 million miles from the sun in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone? See that right there? Right there where we need to be. You know, if Earth were farther from the sun, then all the water on Earth would freeze and we live on a snowball. And if Earth were any closer, all the water would evaporate. Do you know that Earth is tilted exactly 23 and a half degrees on its axis? Scientists say if this tilt were altered in either way, that the surface temperatures would be too extreme for Earth. In other words, we'd all be living in the Sahara Desert or we'd all be living in Antarctica because of the extreme in temperatures. Do you know that on Earth, oxygen comprises 21% of the atmosphere? If oxygen were higher, atmosphere would be prone to fires, and if it were less, we would suffocate. You ever think about these things? <laughs> Somebody did. Do you know that there is an intricate relationship between the earth and the moon? For instance, if the moon exerted more gravity on earth, then it would cause severe tidal effects on the oceans. And the atmosphere that we would inhabit would be out of control weather all the time. They talk about climate change. They don't even have a clue what they're talking about. By the way, the people that talk about climate change, you know they don't really believe it because they're flying all over the world in their private jets to go to their little climate change meetings decide about how they can control your life. No! Did I just say the quiet part out loud? Well, I said it and it's out there, so they're just going to have to deal with it. Do you know, my friend, that Jupiter is exactly where it needs to be in the solar system? You ever woke up one morning and thanked God for Jupiter? Here's why. If Jupiter were not in its current orbit, the Earth would be bombarded with space material, asteroids and meteors and big old chunks of... Debris flying to planet Earth. But Jupiter's gravitational field acts as a cosmic vacuum cleaner 
that attracts all those asteroids and comets that might otherwise strike Earth. I'm telling you, if you get up tomorrow morning and you can't think of one thing to praise God about, just get up and say, God, thank you for Jupiter because the asteroid didn't crash into my house last night. You put it there to protect me. And you've been doing a pretty good job, Lord, for thousands of years. Somebody help me. It seems to me that God has created the universe in such a way as for it to be easy for man to detect God's handiwork. In other words, God isn't mysterious about this thing. He wants to be known. He wants to be discovered. He wants to be loved and worshipped. He wants to have a relationship. If He didn't, then why did He leave so much evidence lying around that screams out, I'm here and I am not silent. Listen to what William Dinsky, a Christian scientist, said. He said, imagine you discover an abandoned cabin in the mountains. As you approach the cabin, you notice something strange. Your favorite meal is cooking in the oven. The TV is tuned to your favorite program. And all your favorite games and books are lying on the table. What would you conclude? The best explanation would clearly be that someone was expecting your arrival. Scientists have recently learned that the universe is much like that cabin. It is created uniquely for us. Over 100 precise conditions in our universe form a cosmic welcome mat for humans, making the earth uniquely suited for life. Somebody says, well, is there life somewhere else out there in the universe? I don't know. And friend, if they are it's so millions of light years away, there's no way we could ever get to them. If it was out there... And I believe that when God created the universe, He put earth at the center stage because that's where the divine drama of redemption was going to play out, my friend. Don't bother yourself over ridiculous questions like that. that really, there's, there, there may not be a good answer. Just believe in the truth that God has given you, and friend, I guarantee you that'll be enough. Okay? A God this precise doesn't do anything by accident. You say, where's the rubber meet the road? What does this mean for me tomorrow morning when I'm trying to put up my pants and get down the road and get to work? Here's what I'm trying to say to you. If God is this precise in creating all things, He never does anything by accident. That means He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. My friend, don't believe the fake news out there. You are not an accident. You are not just some throwaway, some leftover purpose for you. God has a plan for you. By the way, when I read in my word, our word says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says that God has your days numbered. He knows the end from the beginning, everything in between. He has plans to prosper you, not to harm you, but to give you a hope and peace. Friends, you are not here by coincidence. You are here by divine providence. And you have been created for His pleasure. My God, help us to understand. Number four, creation demands the praise of God. We're going to put a cherry on top right here. Creation demands the praise of God. You know, when little David was a shepherd boy out tending his dad's flocks, on those rolling hills of Bethlehem. Kind of boring out there. You can only watch sheep for so long until you lose your mind. So he picked up his little harp. 
And he began to pluck out a few notes and a few chords. And then he began to sing about the great God who was watching over him. You know what David wrote in Psalm 19? He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night reveals knowledge. There is no speech and there are no words where His voice is not heard. You know what Jesus said? He said, look, if you don't praise God, I'm going to make the rocks cry out. I'm not about to be beaten by a rock, friend. God's been too good to me. I've seen too much. I've witnessed too many miracles. I've had too much food on my table. I've had too many prayers answered. I've seen too many people say they keep silent about my God. And you think about that when we come to church sometimes and, and we can't hardly even raise our hands to praise God because we had a bad day or bad. Think about the greatness of God for just a second. And if that doesn't move you, friend, as the old preachers used to say, check your wood. <laughs> it might be wet. Think about David out here. David didn't have a telescope. He didn't have the internet to tell him all that we know. We know more today about this universe than David ever could have dreamed of. And therefore, we have so much more reason to praise the God of creation. He is worthy of worship. And that's what a study of creation should do. I'm not here to rattle off facts to impress you so that you'll think, man, my preacher's really smart. My wife knows the truth. She knows how dumb I really am. Okay? I'm not here to win an argument. I'm here to move you to a deeper place of worship that this God who made it all, who called it all into existence, loves you, wants a relationship with you, and wants to own the key to your heart. And that, my friend, should move you to worship. Oh, friend, when I think about the goodness of God in this way, you look up and you search the stars. Oh, your breath is taken away by the greatness of God. You, you walk through a meadow in the springtime and you pick up a, a flower and you... Oh, God made that. Thank you, God. That little gift that I about trampled on. God, you didn't have to make it smell good, but you did. God, you didn't have to make food taste good, but you did. God, you didn't have to allow me to be born in America in the most prosperous nation that's ever been at a time when there's electricity and running water and Wi-Fi. Thank you, God, that I have clean drinking water and all these creature comforts that I complain about. Oh, the Wi-Fi is slow today. I'm not going back to that Starbucks down there. What's wrong with us? We miss the goodness of God and the little things of creation along the way. A little bird that just lands on the fence post and warbles out a song. He's praised God maybe more than we have that day. And all we've done is complain and whine. God help us. And yet... When you step out on a warm summer afternoon and you see the thunder and the lightning and the power of that storm and it rattles the windows in your house, you understand the God that made it all is not tame. He can't be put in a box. You won't be able to control Him, my friend, and you can't stop Him from coming back. Amen? Oh, and that's the truth of it all. The amazing thing...
Yes, God created it all out of nothing. Do you know how much it cost God to make the world in a week? Nothing. He just spoke it and it happened. You know what cost God everything? Your salvation. He left the glory and the comfort and the praise of heaven. He became a creature. And he went from the cradle to the cross for you and me. He made you. And then he paid the ultimate price so that he might redeem you. And my friend, if that doesn't help you worship, you've missed it. Heard a story about a little boy. I may have told this before. If I have, forgive me. But it's such a good one. Heard a story about a little boy who made a sailboat. Took that sailboat out one day to the water's edge to try it out. Before he sent it on its maiden voyage, he flipped it over, pulled out a marker, and wrote his name on the bottom of it. Billy. Put it out there on the water's edge. Waited for a stiff breeze to come along. There it went. He thought he was so proud. There's that little boat that I made. Seaworthy. But the wind blew a little too hard. And it blew it out further and further into that lake, far beyond the edge. And the little boy sat there with tears rolling down his cheeks on the edge of the water as he saw his little boat sailing away. A couple weeks later, he was walking down Main Street, walked past the window of a second-hand store in the window. Hey, there's my sailboat. He couldn't believe it. There was his sailboat in the window. And so he ran in and he talked to the store clerk. He said, you don't understand, there's that, that sailboat in the window. That's mine. I can prove it to you. So they walk over and the, he said, flip that thing over. Look, it's got my name. Billy, I, I made that. It's mine. The proprietor said, son, that's all well and good. But you have to pay for it. So the little boy, determined in his heart, he was not going to let his boat sit there in the window. So the pop proprietor said, I'll tell you what, son. You go do some odd jobs, earn you some money. I'll set this aside for you. So the little boy went out and he sweated all summer. Worked hard, mowed grass, painted fences and sweep floors until he had enough money. He walked in, he was so proud that day that he laid his money down on the table. Said, I'm here to buy back. My sailboat. The pot proprietor heard the little boy as he walked out the store with a sailboat under his arm. He said, little sailboat, he said, you're twice mine. Not only did I make you, but I bought you. Oh, that's, that's my God. Not only did I make you, but I bought you. When nobody else wanted you, when the price was too high, they search through heaven. Is there somebody worthy enough? He said, I'll go, Father. Send me. I'll pay the price. No price is too high to buy them back off a slave block of sin. Oh, friend, creation costs him nothing. But redemption costs him everything. As our musicians are coming today, I wonder, do you know this Savior? Are you surrendered to Him today? Oh, that God might move in your heart right now. 
as we stand to our feet, what has God said to you through this message? You need to come forward for prayer. You need to be saved. need to renew your heart. You need to come and say, yes, Lord. My answer is yes today. However God has moved in your life, you be obedient right now.